Good morning. I hope you're doing well. Uh, let's have a word of prayer. So Lord, thank you so much for each one that's here, each one watching online. Thank you for those in the overflow room this morning. And uh, just the high honor we have today of uh, coming to you in worship. And for some reason, Lord, in your incredible plan, you decide to gather us all together for such a time as this. And so we don't want to miss whatever you're up to. So we want to give you permission, kind of the keys to our lives, if you will, to, uh, to do what needs to be done in order to make us more like you, we ask in your name. Amen. So on the way in today, I was thinking about different mindsets people have when they come to worship. And uh, now it's just Lisa and I uh, in the truck coming into worship. And so like, there's no screaming kids, you know, there's no like tension in the truck as far as like who, why weren't the kids ready on time? You know, like those kinds of things. Some of you had like, there's no like backhanded swatting, trying to like swat the whole group of them. Hey, just be quiet. You know, that kind of thing. And so some of you come with that mindset of total chaos. And now we're trying to come and pretend like we're all like Jesus. And that's part of, part of life. And now our, ours is kind of more laid back. And uh, I make Lisa listen to Southern gospel on the way in or something like that, you know, just to bother. <laughs> and so, and so we have that moment together. And then as we get closer, of course, she prays. But I was thinking, we all bring a mindset to worship. Like this past week, if we had good things happen, we bring that mindset. Or if we have bad things happen in our hearts or lives this week, we'll bring that mindset into worship. And, and so I thought I'd sort of share with you sort of what I have been feeling and then in kind of my mindset over the last couple of months, at least when it comes to worship and, and what I, my mindset in coming to worship at Alive is these days. And I would summarize it with the word uh, anticipation. That's kind of been my mindset, uh, especially, I'd say the last maybe four months has been anticipation. And anticipation is an emotion involving pleasure or anxiety in considering or awaiting an expected event. It's like a kid getting ready for Christmas or, or, or me getting ready for Christmas or, or whatever it is. You just kind of look at you know, a trip, hunting trip or whatever. We just have those moments of anticipation. But that's a little too sterile for me. I like this definition of anticipation, which is basically the electricity of childhood. Isn't that a great definition for anticipation? I got the electricity of childhood. And so when we come to worship these days, that's sort of what I'm carrying. The electricity of childhood is part of this. And whenever Christians gather, whenever the church gathers and, or true followers of Christ gather, be it in a worship service or a small group or, or online or just on a, a golf trip or whatever, my, my anticipation runs high because I anticipate God could move. It's this sense that Christians are in the house and God could move. And, and we see this week in and week out and the different kinds of tables I sit at throughout the week is story after story of people whose lives were changed or of, of kind of this... Um, People that made a decision to follow God in a different way or they tell testimony of God revealing a different way of what it would mean to follow him. And, and, and that kind of got me excited because when we decided to do a series on revival, my sense of anticipation went through the roof. And I'll tell you why. It's because of how revival's defined. Uh, I, I like to think of revival as spiritual saturation, and when I think about spiritual saturation and a series on revival, and I think about believers all gathering together for a discussion on spiritual saturation, my anticipation, I got the electricity of childhood running through me. Because when Jesus saturates you, he brings a newness to you. 
You're, you're not the same old you. And he brings such a newness to you that you can't be confined in the old you. That's kind of what's on the table. And, and to help guide us through this process of revival, we've been looking at this verse from Second Chronicles, and it goes like this. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and, and I'll, I'll heal their land. And this is the electricity of childhood part for me. The whole key to when revival happens, the kind of what unlocks this whole thing is when God chooses to saturate his people with his glorious presence. When that happens, he doesn't start out there. He doesn't start in the, you know, four billion people on the planet that don't acknowledge him. But when God chooses to saturate a people with his presence, he actually starts with the people in here. He talks, he starts with my people. So he's not up there trying to change the world. He's in here trying to change the church. When God decides to saturate his people, it starts with his glorious presence in my people, people in relationship with him already. And so when we're looking at like all those nasty pagan people and all that kind of stuff, and all those people, if God would just change them, God's like, hey, that's fantastic. I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to give you a whole new you. And he starts in here. So God starts with Christians, people who say they're a God follower at some level. And he starts with them, Christians who will repent, turn from wicked ways. And if we will... If we will do that, not those people out there, if we will do that, God promises to do what only God can do. It's not a recipe here. This isn't two plus two equals four. This is actually putting ourselves in a posture as believers, putting ourselves in such a position that God is calling the church to so he can do what only he can do. Humble ourselves, he said. That's where he started. And, and this is where we get off our sanctified horses and our self-righteousness and our judgmental attitude and our belief that we're all of a sudden better than someone else because of something we did with Jesus. And this just, this just flushes all of that. Humbling ourselves is the obedient choice to let go of everything in the past, all the things that we're not proud of and all the things that the identity we've been constructing along the way. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be this. I'm going to be this. And this is saying, you know what? I'm taking my hands off all that stuff and I want to take hold of something new and better that you want to provide for us. And then pray. Matt brought this to us last week. God, help me to want what you want to obey whenever I want to do something different and to desire your will even above my will. So I was thinking about this whole idea of this call to prayer that Matt brought last week. And, and here's the thing that has been in my brain this week. Keep in mind in this verse in 2 Chronicles, this call to pray, this happened on the, the night that ended the day when God's glory filled his temple. Do you remember that? So, so, so God's glory filled the temple, and, and you can read about this in the, in, in the first part of the chapter. God's glory filled the temple so significantly, so whatever that presence was, that the people of God had to stay outside the building. They couldn't go in there, and they actually were bowing down on the pavement outside the building to worship God. And the scripture says the priests couldn't go in there. Why? There was so much glory in there, there was no room for the priest. 
And so even the priests stayed out because God's glory filled the temple. There was too much glory in the place. All the Israelites, the scripture says, saw fire fall from heaven and land on the building. Now listen, that's weird. The people that were involved in this are not weird. They're people just like me, just like you. They just lived at a different time in history. And so these people like me, like you, went to the temple for grand opening day and God's power, his glory falls from heaven so much so they couldn't get in the door to get their cup of coffee. And so they had to just stay outside and kneel and drink their coffee outside because God's glory was in the temple. And it was amazing. And their response after they saw God's firefall and they all gathered around, they saw us going to the temple. Their response was they cried out, God is good and his love endures forever. That was their response to the glory of God falling. So here's my point. Do you realize how easy it would be to pray if we had just seen God's glory fall? I mean, you think about it. Let's say we all pulled up to church today and we all had to stay outside because God's glory fell. And so we're all in the parking lot and we're around the fountain and we're on our knees and his love endures forever. And someone says, pray. And they don't even call to pray because all of us are already praying. Because we just saw God's glory fall. So when someone says, pray, like in it, I'm in it. Whatever that was we just saw happen, I want that in my life. And their lives changed forever. Their anticipation had been met with the glory of God. They had the electricity of childhood. They had built this temple and watched it come together over a seven-year period. Day after day, they would walk by and see the walls and the stones go up. And then on ribbon-cutting day, they went to hear the big grand opening of the day, the big grand opening of the temple, and they were surprised with the glory of God that fell on the temple and filled it. Friends, that's what revival is. Get this, because I feel like I'm alone right now. Today, we don't worship at a temple. Today, we are the temple. We are the temple. There's no building to sit outside and wait for his spirit to fall. He's not going to fall on a building. He's going to fall on you and going to fall on me. Paul says, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening. And so our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what we are anticipating is the glory of God filling this temple in such a way that we cannot help but fall on our knees and cry out, God is good, and his love endures forever. That's revival, and that's what we're longing for. And why my anticipation is running so high. Because I start to think about you that I know, and you think about me, and we think, what would Tom be like if the glory of God fell in a more powerful way in his life? What would his marriage be like? What would raising his kids be like? What kind of friend would he, would he be if God's glory fell on him in a more powerful way? powerful way. That's what we're praying for. That's revival. And when God's glory fills these temples, when God's glory fills this pastor, this follower of Christ, prayer isn't laborious. Prayer's not even a discipline. Prayer is this overflow of my heart because God's glory is up in here and I want to talk to God. Do you understand? 
You say, I'm not, no, I'm drinking a lot of preacher cereal this morning. I, I get it. I understand. But do you, do you, are you with me? Do you see where I'm headed? What if that's what we're waiting for? For you and me in our safe little confines of what worship looks like and our evaluation that we do week in and week out. That was good. That was bad. I could dance that music, but didn't have a good beat. All those things. And all of a sudden we shut all that crap down and just said, God, glory fall on me. That's revival. If you and I would be willing to relinquish control and receive his glory, I long for that with the electricity of childhood. The song, the, the Chronicles writer says, if my people humble themselves and pray, seek his face and turn from wicked ways, then I'll hear and I'll heal. That's what the position he laid out. And I want to focus on the seek my face and turn from wicked way part today. See, it's one thing I've discovered to turn away from something. It's another thing to turn toward something. Do you understand? It's one thing to not look at this. It's another thing to look toward that. It's difficult to turn away from something if we don't know what we're turning toward. So scripture lays out what we're turning toward. This is the apostle Paul who writes it so beautifully. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts. So we could know, here it is. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Of course you haven't. I haven't read it yet. Do you see it? So we could know the glory of God. What's that? The same stinking stuff that fell on the temple. The same thing. That's Shekinah glory piece. So that we, normal, everyday people like us, could know the glory of God that is seen where? In the face of Jesus. So, so it would be fairly appropriate, even hermeneutically, to personalize the promises of Second Chronicles in this way. If my people, who are called by my name, that's, that's a good many of us, will humble themselves and pray and seek the face of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Just for a moment. Like, can you imagine seeing the face of Jesus? Because it's been messing with me these days, and I'm not sure if God's doing something or if I need medication. I, I, I'm not real sure. But can you imagine walking out your front door and seeing Jesus standing on the front porch? And you walk smack dab into Jesus. You're like, oh, what are you doing here? You know, can you imagine that? I mean, come on, stay with me. Not Hollywood's version of Jesus, but you seek the face of Jesus because if I think about it too long, the electricity of childhood begins to wash all over me. Moses asked to see the face of God. And God basically said to Moses, you can't handle it. He says, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll hide you in this you know, the little crevice of the rock here. And I'm going to walk by and then you can take a gander on my back. On my back. And Moses said, okay, I'm in. They're on Mount Sinai. You can read it for yourself. But so God puts Moses in the crevice of the rock and he hides him there. And then he just walks by and Moses can see the back, which is a weird story. I'm going to give you that. That's a weird story. But when Moses came back off the mountain, apparently God's glory had transformed him just by seeing God's back 
just by the back of, Mo, of God, Moses got transformed because he went into the people and the people were like, oh, ooh, ow. He said, Moses, cover, cover your face. Not because he was ugly, but said, Moses, you know, <laughs> put that veil on. Do you remember why scripture says? The glory of God is too strong in you. We can't look at you. And the scripture says for 40 days, Moses had to wear a veil because the glory of God was shining through that dude. Think about that. Moses isn't a weird one. Moses is human. He's a man, just lived a different time in history as you and as me. No difference. No difference. The person who saw the glory of God. You and I have this privilege. Oh, wake up, sleeping church. We have this privilege as believers. If you call yourself a follower of God, we have the grace of scripture and the power of worship and the presence of the Holy Spirit that will allow us to actually seek the face of Jesus that even Moses didn't have. That's before me and you. We've made it so sterile. We've made it so controlled. So listen, think about it. Tired and worn out Christian been there, done that, got the t-shirt, Christian, born and bred Christian. Think about it for a moment. Think about seeing the actual face of Jesus. Think about looking into his eyes, seeing the structure of his nose and the shape of his mouth and the tone of his skin. Think about that Jesus for the first time looking into his face. And thinking about for the first time, seeing the one who let go of equality with God to reach you. Think about Jesus who invented unconditional love. Up to that point, the world had never heard of it. Jesus who invented that, and then he taught us how to live likewise. Jesus who not only taught, but demonstrated a kind of love that this world has never known and not known since. Think about seeing the face of Jesus on your front porch who stood between a religion that killed and broke spirits and said, I've actually come to bring life and life to the full. You boys are wrong. Think about Jesus who stood against condemnation and said in me, in me, in me, in you, there is no more condemnation. Somebody shake the etch-a-sketch because that is gone. Think about Jesus who never sinned, but he took on sin that we would be free from sin, not just sin that you and I can tolerate, but the sin that turns our guts, the, the sin that we're repulsed by, he took those sins on as well. Think about Jesus who, who took on what is detestable to him. Why? So this group of people could be made holy like him. Think about Jesus who died and was buried in a tomb and took our sin with him. Jesus who overcame sin and death. Think about gazing on his face. Jesus who promises, I will never leave you or forsake you or abandon you. Think about Jesus who pursued you and pursued me even when we were running from him and wrecking our lives and the lives of those people we love. Think about seeing that man face to face. The Jesus who valued the little children and they loved to be him. The Jesus whose company was sought by those who didn't even believe in him. They just wanted to be in his presence. And Jesus who stood with you when you were betrayed and stood with you when you were diagnosed. Jesus who promised not just to put the lipstick on a pig of our lives, but to actually make us brand new spanking creations. Jesus who gave us his spirit to fill this 
earthly temple. Jesus who gives us the promise that he will come again and one day we will all see him face to face. Imagine looking at that Jesus. Because that Jesus, that's the face of Jesus. And sleeping church, we've lost it. We've forgotten. We thought this was part of our culture. It's not. It's a following. It's a commitment at the heart level, despite your culture, to seek the face of Jesus with every ounce of who we are. Listen, as I read scripture, there is a day in front. Listen, it hasn't happened. I'm sorry, calm down. There's a day. There's a day in front of us, every one of us, when we will lose ourselves, yes, in his eyes, in his smile, in his compassion. That day is ahead of you. I was raised on this wonderful blend of hymns and gospel songs. And thinking of the face of Jesus, Jesus reminds me of this gospel song of what a day that will be. Day, a glorious day that 
what will be. Sing what a day, one more time, what a day. And what a day, a glorious day that will be. Oh man, what a day. I don't know if that gets you a fire going, but if not, your wood's wet. And uh, that's a good thing. Man, even this table's got like something weird happening on. Look at that. Look at that. This is great. Sorry, I, honestly, when I came up, I thought, man, Tom, you're getting lightheaded because the table moved. It was actually the table moving. Okay, so listen. Uh, here's here's kind of where this is for me. That, that's a great thing, and I'm excited for where we are right now. I'm excited that we just experienced God's presence like we just did. But I do feel it's important for me to offer you a bit of a warning related to what we've just been singing about because it's not enough to recall the fondness of what a day that will be. That's not enough because some of us were living in such a way that the glory of God falling on us isn't going to happen. So, so you see, two things happen when you see the face of God. The first thing is this, we're amazed with God. When you see the face of God, you see the face of Jesus, we are all amazed. We've just been experiencing that together. The glory of God fills the temple and we all are in awe. That's an amazing thing. But listen, Christians, listen. There is something else that happens when you see the face of Jesus. We become aware of how unlike Jesus we are. That is where you and I will choose to check out. We're all about seeing the face of Jesus and man, the glory of God filling the temple and everybody gets on their knees and say, that was an amazing thing. But when we see how unlike God we are, well, then we have to make some kind of decision. You see it in scripture all the time. People who are undone in the presence of God, like Isaiah or Moses or even the psalmist who wrote this. The psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And check this. See if there is any offensive way in me, any part of me that is not like you. And lead me in the way everlasting. See, the anticipation of revival involves God's part, and he's really good at that part. But it also involves our part. God's part is what you see in the face of Jesus. Our part is to respond to that face by turning away from anything that is wicked and not of him. Today, I cannot wait for the day when I finally see Jesus. As I go out in the evenings and feed our cows at the house, um, I do. Uh, this fall sky just gets me, and I just start looking up there, and I'm thinking about, man, could this be the day? I have the electricity of childhood when I think about that sky and whatever happens, and I just look forward to being there. It's not always been the case in my life, I should tell you. There were times in my life where I did not look forward to the day of seeing the face of Jesus. Can you agree? There were times when I really wasn't into it at all. There were times when I would say I believed in God, but I was uncertain how the conversation with God would go when I finally saw him face to face. In my mind, I pictured this mixture of disappointment and judgment from the face of Jesus, or, or maybe a moment when I stood finally face to face with Jesus and I discovered that I wasn't enough. I didn't do it right. I no longer think that way. I no longer feel the pressure to be perfect or make the people in my life think I'm perfect. 
I no longer feel this false sense of, oh, I got to pretend to be something I'm not. And it all came from a very simple sentence that produced a revelation in my life and changed everything. And the sentence was simply this, Jesus is for me. He's not against me. And I wish I could say it was just like, aha, and the light came on. No, it was a journey where I would constantly fight the old patterns of thinking. And God poured new wine and said, hey, Jesus is for you. He's not against you. And all of this leads to a very personal, intrusive, and poignant question I want to put in our laps today. I think it's worthy of consideration. Am I satisfied with the life I will lay before Jesus when I see him face to face. I have the image of a proud father. I'll stand before Jesus and kneel before Jesus or face in the dirt before Jesus. And I will say like a child holding up a piece of artwork that only a parent could love, you know, something with popsicle sticks and Elmer glue and a marker. And I'll, I'll hold it up before Jesus. And I'll say, I know what you've done for me. And this is the difference it's made in my life. That's what I look forward to that day. Not perfect, just what I have. That'll be a good day. Now listen, as your brother just trying to do life alongside you, doing my best every day to do life, I have to tell you, there is certainly another option. And you have to hear it. Maybe some of you are experiencing it even now. One day you may stand before Jesus and you'll have to say this, Jesus, you gave to me and I did nothing with it. That will be the reality for a good many people in the human race. You gave everything to me, and I did nothing with it. Nobody wants to have that day in our future. Nobody wants to live with a sense of dread for that day. The truth is, for a long period of my life, I discovered I could abuse God's grace. I gave my heart to God, so I would say I was a believer but I kept certain areas of my life locked away from him. Can you relate to what I'm saying? So the glory of God really couldn't fall because I still had a good bit of the glory of Tom at work in me. And so I sort of lived under grace, you know, this whole idea for years, I would say, a lot of received God's grace, but then I had guilt and shame because of the areas of my life I had not turned over to him. You know, I'm giving my heart to you and salvation to you, but... My sexuality, I'm going to keep to myself. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you my heart, Jesus, but my selfishness, my self-centeredness. And then even as I became a believer, I give my heart to you, but my self-righteousness, I'm going to, to make myself feel better, I'm going to give that, keep that for myself. I failed to see in those days that guilt and shame were not my enemies. They were actually blessings. I know. When's the last time you heard that one? Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame aren't burdens. They're actually gifts. And here's what I mean by that. The reason I say they're gifts is because they revealed the areas of my life that were not like Jesus. 
We spend so much time trying to guilt and shame cope. That's what we're spending all our time doing. What instead of that, avoiding, what if we ran into it? What if we started seeing what was making us feel guilty and filled with shame? Not like a burden thing that we live with forever or season. I'm talking about a moment in time. Guilt and shame produce a wonderful gift from God in my life. It's the gift of conviction. That's a good thing in your life and my life. Do you know why? It tells me where I'm not like Jesus. It tells me where the glory of God is not falling because I'm still holding on. Jesus got all the laws perfectly and he paid a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Living under grace is not so we can live under this get out of hell free card. That's not it. The same grace that saves us also gives us the strength, truing up how we live our lives with what we find in the face of Jesus. And that, friends, is the point of life. If I have one more person ask me, Tom, what is God's purpose for my life? Okay, I don't know. I don't know. But I know what the purpose of the human race is, and it's simply this. It is for us to kind of reflect what we find in the face of Jesus. That's what we do. Tom, what's the purpose for my life? Reflect what you find in the face of Jesus. Yeah, but like, what if I want to buy a blimp? Reflect, you know, what you find in the face of Jesus. What if I want to study, reflect what you find in the face of Jesus? I don't know if it really matters. But reflect what you find in the face of Jesus. That's the purpose of life. Your sports, your athletics, what you're doing in high school, what you're doing in college, what you're doing in the workforce. Reflect what you find in the face of Jesus. That's the purpose. And Paul uses this metaphor to describe what it will be like when we finally see Jesus face to face. And he refers to the church as the bride and Jesus as the groom. Ephesians 5, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. And he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Let me, let me kind of tell you that again. Jesus came and he sacrificed and he died and rose again not just so we could be saved. That's only half of it. But he came so we could be sanctified. We could be made holy so that one day he would present us spotless, without blemish, white as snow, no wrinkles or fully Botoxed, whatever words you want. Jesus gives a warning over and over. And this is actually how the entire written revelation of Scripture ends. It's stunning. It's almost jarring. And we that live in the modern church, I think, forget this is how the thing ended. If you open the last verse of your Bible, the last book, the last page, John writes... He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, these are written in red in your scripture. These are the words of Jesus. Yes, I am coming soon. And then John said, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We know what happens at the end. A day comes when we all see the face of Jesus. <laughs> the time to get ready for that day, people, 
is not on the day. It's today. You don't want to try to get ready on the day. What is God calling you, revealing to you to turn away from? Not a threat. It's a desire to see the face of Jesus. A wonderful day is coming. And he will be our blessed hope or our holy terror. And it's never, it's not too late to humble yourself and pray. God, we come to you aware of how far we have fallen short of your glory. But you kept pursuing us. And in this moment, you've given us a choice to hold on to our sin or to turn and seek your face. So allow me just to end with a potentially offensive question, but I think it's worth your consideration. If today were the day, I mean, if we couldn't even get to lunch today because we see Jesus face to face, are you okay with what you will turn over to him? Make sense? If today were the day and we stand before Jesus face to face and say, man, Jesus, I see you in your face and all the things you did for me. Amazing things of unconditional love, forgiveness. And this is what I did. What will that moment be like for you? Jesus, thank you for uh, your love. Thank you for the challenge of scripture. Lord, it never gets old for me. Uh, the promises are new every morning. I find myself over and over again reading passages I've known my entire life and being rocked by them. I'm grateful, Lord. I want to pray for my friends who have kind of walked into a buzzsaw this morning, maybe. <laughs> I've been so pumped about uh, today. And Lord, um, I pray for my friends that as they think about that conversation of seeing you face to face, and they would say, you know, that day makes me full of fear. Um, I, I want to say, if that's you, I, I understand. I've actually been there myself. But you have the ability to change that. There's no need for you to fear that day. If you want to change that, it's about putting yourself in the posture of, of 2 Chronicles 7. Humble yourself and pray, seek his face and turn from your wicked ways. And what that looks like in, in our speech is more of the posture of the heart. And so uh, I'll... I prayed something like, Lord, forgive me for, for my sin. And initially that was like a 30,000 foot view. Lord, I just knew my life. I wasn't living it for you. And I want you to come and forgive me for my sin. And he does. He comes in and forgives you just because you've asked him. And then as you live for him, as life continues, he zooms in 5,000 foot view. And the Holy Spirit starts to speak to you about areas of your life. You can do that right now by turning the reins of your life over to him. Just pray that, Lord, forgive me for my sin. And if that happens, you should tell someone, small group, spouse, family, pastor, staff, tell somebody, and maybe for some baptisms in your future where you actually go public with what happened. For others, 
Maybe you've been living your entire life saved, but you've resisted sanctification. You're saved, but you're not letting God make you holy. Listen, let's turn over something we're proud of on that day. Let's let God have his way and his will. Uh, In your name we pray, amen. I wanted to celebrate communion with you today, partly because it's one of the places that I see the face of Jesus most often. Um, Sometimes I think about like something I saw in Hollywood. If you want to grab your little cups, sorry for this. It's just going to be this way till COVID is finally clear. Um, And if you want to peel back that top layer and um, you can get this little piece of bread. And so if you allow me just to kind of guide you through this process, and I know they're they're difficult, but um, as you take communion today, Um, do so in the sense of the face of Jesus. Think about looking Jesus in the face and think about if you want to, even in your own, just break that little piece of bread because scripture said that his body was broken in order that you and I could be saved. And as you take and eat it, think about the face of Jesus being broken. And then you can go a little deeper here and if you can kind of pull back the wrapper on this juice part. I always feel like I've accomplished a prize when I open both those successfully. (laughs) Look at it before you drink it because what it represents is actually the blood of Jesus Christ. And his blood was poured out forming a new covenant so you and I could be saved and be filled with his glory. And so take and drink and remember that. And now, Lord, we ask that the taste on our lips, what we're feeling and sensing right now, would point us to the face of Jesus. Let your glory fall in your name. Amen.